Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series titled Evolving Christianity by reflecting on our commitment to actively and persistently work against racism. If you go to our website and click on About, you'll see a link titled Working Against Racism. On that page, we articulate a definition for racism and we explain our commitment as a community to stand and to work against it. The definition reads, Definitions of racism long considered to be about individual attitudes and actions have been updated in our day to include the growing recognition that racism goes beyond the individual. Racism is perpetuated by systems of power, governments, schools, prisons, families, economies, religions. Racism is also understood to intersect with other forms of discrimination. And this intersectionality, the ways various identities interact, such as race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and ability, affects individuals' lived experiences, shaping their perspectives, worldview, and relationships. Working against racism, then, is any measure that produces or sustains racial equity between racial groups and must include an attentiveness to the intersecting identities of the members of a community. With this definition in mind, our commitment reads, Pearl Church understands Jesus' message of divine love to be inclusive of all people. The Christian scriptures show Jesus seeking out and elevating those marginalized by the dominant voices of society. This purposeful action moves counter to the insidiousness of racism. Following Jesus, therefore, we commit ourselves to intentionally work against racism, standing firmly against racism in all forms. Our commitment is the deconstruction of disadvantage based on skin color, to unearth bias both conscious and unconscious, and to work in our community to counter inequities long rooted in the poisoned soil of racism. Then we have two of our values that connect to this important work. Equity asks us to examine and deconstruct systems that marginalize and perpetuate disparities and to construct new, more generous and just systems in their place. And inclusion asks for active investment in our community, engaging with the unique and intersecting identities of those within our community and offering support and opportunity for all to realize their full and fully loved selves. This is something that we're passionate about at Pearl. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. I'd like to begin with a painting. Can we pull that up? This painting hangs on the wall in the room of the character Eric Effion in the TV show Sex Ed. Oh my goodness, Mike watches Sex Ed. (laughs) Yes, I do. I'd encourage you to watch it, especially if you have kids. In fact, I'd even encourage you to have your kids watch it whenever they're ready, and if you want to be really brave, I'd encourage you to watch it with your kids. But doesn't it have nudity? It does. Doesn't it have sex? 
It does. And your kids are going to be around nudity and sex for the rest of their lives. And the show is honest, it is tender, it is soaring, it is heartbreaking, it is maddening, it is confusing, it is complex, it is interesting. Which I think is to say it represents sex, right? <laughs> In ways that accord with our human experiences of sex. When season four came out, Jen and I considered rewatching the previous seasons just to remind ourselves of what was going on. And I asked Asher, I said, Hey, Asher, me and I are thinking about rewatching some of those seasons. Do you want to watch them with us? And he said, Dad, I'm okay talking about it with you, but there is no way in hell I'm watching it with you. <laughs> and I said, Fair enough. Talking is just fine. I will happily take talking. So back to the painting. In the show, Eric is black, and Eric is queer, and Eric is wonderfully free in his expression of his queerness. However, in one episode, he is assaulted, which results in him muting himself. The colorful clothes and makeup are put away, the exuberant joy and freedom are diminished, and he begins to exist in the world in ways that are disintegrated for him. Simple clothes, quiet personality, which rise from his trauma, for certainly he thinks it is better to be muted and safe than free and in danger. In one of the following episodes, Eric is in his room. He's looking up at this painting, which hangs on the wall above his bed. Isn't it magnificent? In this painting, Jesus is dazzling with divinity, represented by the bright light around his head. This painting, Jesus, is strong, represented by his muscles in that line down there in the bottom left corner. But this Jesus is also gentle, represented by that lamb, and I think even Jesus' face. And he's beautiful, isn't he? Perhaps intoxicating, represented by the pink roses there in the bottom right. And most importantly, I think in this painting, Jesus is also black. Gazing up at this painting, Eric is moved by Jesus, bearing witness to his own strength, gentleness, beauty, and blackness in Jesus. Eric repents, which is to say he makes a journey home back to his deepest self. Dressed to the nines and full of exuberance, he joins his family for church, singing and dancing in his newfound self-acceptance and self-love. It's an incredible moment in the show. If you've grown up in the United States, or if you've grown up in the West, you've rarely been able to bear witness to Eric's black Jesus. And this is because our Jesus has been made white, right? Often depicted with pale skin, light brown hair, and at times blue eyes, the Western Jesus has been transformed. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say disfigured into a white Western man. And while some might want to say, well, who cares? What's the big deal? I want to reply by saying we all must care. This, this is a very big deal. We've talked before here at Pearl about the importance of representation. In an article on its importance, Anna Christina Ramon, assistant director of the Bunk Center, which is a center for African American studies at UCLA, states, what you see often becomes a part of your memory and thus a part of your life experience. As a way to demonstrate how powerful representation is, the Huff Post rounded up 12 moments that underscored the power of representation in our world. And I'd like to share three of those examples. 
The first is titled Hair Like Mine. That's what it's called. In 2009, then White House photographer Pete Souza captured a powerful moment when five-year-old Jacob Philadelphia met Barack Obama and asked if the president's hair was like his. This photo is one of my favorites, documentary filmmaker Don Porter said of the image. It speaks to the importance of representation. When children see people who look like them in places of power, it lets them know their dreams are absolutely possible. There's a second example called Target's Viral Display. A year ago, a boy named Oliver Garza, who has caudal regression syndrome and uses a wheelchair, was struck while shopping at Target by a display featuring another boy who uses a wheelchair. His mom shared the meaningful experience in a viral post on Facebook. Today, Oliver stopped me dead in his tracks, turned back around to see the picture that he spotted. He just stared at it in awe. He recognized another boy like him, smiling and laughing on a display at Target. Oliver sees kids, sees kids every day, but he never gets to see kids like him. And this was amazing, she writes. And a third example is called the inauguration of Kamala Harris. When Kamala Harris was sworn in as the nation's first female black and Asian American vice president, it was a significant moment for girls, and especially girls of color in the U.S. Retired NFL player Tori Smith illustrated this when he shared a photo of his two-year-old daughter Corey wearing a t-shirt that read, My VP looks like me. I'm so excited for my daughter, he wrote on Instagram. Anything is possible, but it's different when you see it. Representation. It's a big deal. And not just in politics and in media, but in religion as well. And the tragic irony here is that Jesus was not white. He was a Palestinian Jewish man living in Galilee in the first century. And so most scholars agree that Jesus was somewhere in the spectrum of color between black and brown. However, slowly as the church began to get more and more enmeshed in the Roman Empire, historians tell us right around the 3rd, 4th century that Greek and Roman gods began to influence images of Jesus who began to take on white features. Now, imagine with me a different church history. Like, what if, as Jesus began to be made white, what if the church would have rejected a white Jesus? What would that have been like? Like, what if the church would have written a doctrinal statement? Doctrinal statements was the church's thing, 4th century and on. What if they would have written a doctrinal statement that read something like this? Because Jesus was a Palestinian Jewish man living in Galilee, we Christians will forever bear witness to his black or brown skin in every description and depiction of Jesus until the end of time. Can you imagine? We really can't because Jesus has been made so perennially white. But what if? What if white people from the day of Jesus forward were to regularly and consistently experience Jesus perpetually represented as black or brown? Well, it makes me wonder if white people bearing witness to a black or brown Jesus whom they call Lord would have had more difficulty in trapping and enslaving black, brown, and indigenous people in Jesus' name. I mean, Anna Christina Ramon did find through her study that what you see often becomes a part of your memory and thus a part of your life experience. And so I do wonder what impact a historically black or brown Jesus may have had on white followers of Jesus. Of course, this didn't happen. Instead, over time, whiteness became more and more 
centered. Rising to the horrifying doctrine of discovery written by Pope Alexander VI, this doctrine theologically underwrote not only colonialism, but violence, murder, kidnapping, and the enslavement of non-white people in Jesus' name. And so on this eve of Columbus Day, which is celebrated tomorrow, which is rightfully being transfigured into Indigenous Peoples Day, I'd like to read a portion of the Doctrine of Discovery. It reads, To the illustrious sovereigns, our very dear son in Christ, Ferdinand, king, and our dear daughter in Christ, Isabella, queen, among other works well-pleasing to the divine majesty and cherished of our heart, this assuredly ranks highest that in our times, especially the Catholic faith and the Christian religion, be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of souls be cared for, and that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. Just 15 years later was the Protestant Reformation. But to be clear, it was not a response to or a reaction against the doctrine of discovery. The centering of whiteness and ultimately a gospel for white people were just beginning. Here's what I mean. Jesus walks into a synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news. From the Greek, euagalion, literally, gospel. And what is the good news gospel according to Jesus? Well, it's clear in Luke 4, it's freedom from bondage, it's healing for the sick, it's release for the oppressed, it's the proclamation of God's favor on everyone. According to Jesus, that is the gospel. Now, with Jesus' gospel clearly in our minds, I'd like to ask, for whom is Jesus' gospel good news? Answer, it's good for people who are in bondage. It's good for people who are sick. It's good for people who are oppressed. It's good for people who are unfavored as marginalized people in a society. In short, Jesus' gospel is good for people who are like Jesus. Not just brown and black people living in an increasingly Greco-Roman world, but remember a child of yet-to-be-married parents. Remember from a town called Nazareth, about which the moniker existed, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And let us remember that Jesus began his life as a refugee. His family flees to Egypt to find safety from Herod. And while some try to argue that Egypt was still within the Roman territory, fleeing one's homeland to a foreign country in fear of one's life, regardless of the geopolitical realities of the time, makes a person a refugee. And so who is the historical Jesus? Jesus was a black or brown child of unmarried parents who came from a place called Nothing Good, who fled to Egypt as a refugee and lived out his life as a non-citizen marginalized by the Roman Empire. Freedom from bondage? Yes, please. Healing for the sick? Yes, please. Release for the oppressed? Yes, please. The proclamation of God's favor on everyone? Yes, of course. That's good news gospel according to Jesus. But here's the thing. What if you're not black or brown? What if your parents are married? What if you come from a place where there's something good? What if you're not a refugee? What if you're a citizen? What if you're not marginalized in any way? Like, 
what if you're a person of privilege? For example, what if you're a middle or upper class straight white citizen of the United States? Well, then you wouldn't really need Jesus' gospel, would you? You wouldn't need it at all. And so over time, white theology has shifted the focus of Jesus' gospel for, from being good news for those who are in bondage, for those who are sick, for those who are oppressed, for those who are unfavored. In other words, for the marginalized here and now to a gospel of forgiveness of sins now and eternal life later. And while most Western Christians would say that freedom, healing, and release are good, these facets of Jesus' gospel aren't central to what has become a white gospel. Are you beginning to see some of the connections? Baked into a white gospel, people of privilege, middle, upper class, straight, white citizens of the United States, they only need a spiritual salvation because their lives are already good. Baked into a white gospel, people of privilege, middle, upper class, straight, white citizens of the United States don't have to help liberate or heal or favor anyone because it's not truly part of the gospel. Baked into a white gospel, people of privilege, middle, upper class, straight, white citizens of the United States are able to maintain center stage by telling everyone around them what they must think and what they must do in order to belong to God as they do. And that, will, that among other things, is a racist gospel. It's a racist gospel. Remember, definitions of racism long considered to be about individual attitudes and actions have been updated in our day to include the growing recognition that racism goes beyond the individual. Racism is perpetuated by systems of power, governments, schools, prisons, families, economies, religions. And so a gospel that's good for people of privilege but not for black or brown people who live out their lives among a white majority or a gospel that's good for people of privilege, but not for children of unwed parents. Or a gospel that's good for people of privilege, but not for refugees. Or a gospel that's good for people of privilege, but not for undocumented non-citizens. Or a gospel that's good for people of privilege, but not for the marginalized. Well, that is, among other things, racist. And it is quite literally and historically speaking, anti-Christ. Pearl Church understands Jesus' message of divine love to be inclusive of all people, especially those who are marginalized by the dominant voices of society. And this purposeful action moves counter to the insidiousness of racism. Following Jesus, then we commit ourselves to intentionally work against racism, standing firmly against racism in all forms, the theology of our gospel included. About this, the great theologian James Cone writes in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story of God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on a cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair, as revealed in the biblical and black proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. How good is that? And so at Pearl, our commitment is the deconstruction of disadvantage based on skin color, to unearth bias, both conscious and unconscious, and to work in our community to counter inequities long rooted in the poor, poisoned soil of racism. And to be very clear, I am not, please hear me, I am not trying to communicate that we at Pearl have arrived. 
and that we are doing it all well and perfectly. Absolutely not. We have much to learn and far to go. A commitment to anti-racism is grounded in the realization that there is always more to learn and do, which is made possible when marginalized people find welcome and are able to use their diverse experiences and perspectives to enlarge the experiences and perspectives of the majority. Over the past couple of weeks, Ben has mentioned that one way to think about deconstruction is through the lens of making space. Making space for people who have been too long unwelcome at the table to have a voice. With this in mind, I'd like to highlight how horrifying and ironic it is that we Christians in the United States have come to call a gospel good that wouldn't have even been good for Jesus, whom we call Lord. When you look with me at Eric's Jesus one more time, go ahead and just take a moment. As we deepen into our commitment to anti-racism, may we grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus in non-white people and non-white systems. May we who are married with children grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus in unmarried parents and their children. May we who are from places considered good grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus, and those who come from places considered to be nothing. May we who are safe and settled grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus in refugees. May we who are citizens grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus in undocumented non-citizens. And may we who represent the majority in any form grow in our capacity to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus in the marginalized. For truly there is no other way to participate in the kingdom of heaven at hand if it's only good for people who have no need of heaven on earth. As I conclude on the eve of what is called Columbus Day, I'd like to state several objections and one commitment. If you find yourself agreeing, I invite you to respond to each statement with the word amen, which means so be it, yes. That's not a word we use much here at Pearl. We're very quiet. <laughs> On this eve of Columbus Day, we reject the doctrine of discovery. Amen. On this eve of Columbus Day, we reject violence and dominion in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On this eve of Columbus Day, we reject meaning difference as barbarism. Amen. On this eve of Columbus Day, we reject the perennial, perennially white Jesus found in Christian nationalism. Amen. On this eve of Columbus Day, we reject a gospel that isn't good for those in need of good. Amen. And as we deepen into the way of Jesus, we commit to extend a table that is truly common, around which every person is able to hear these divine words. This is me for you. Amen. May it be so. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? 
You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.